Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Dear listeners, welcome to today's chapter of the Big Picture Show here live on Radio Islam International. Welcome to our Radio Al-Ansar listeners from Durban and Peter Maddisburg and all those listening via live stream. Well, you've heard that uh, clip that I played on. It was on TRT World, which is T- uh, Turkey's leadish, uh, leading English news channel. Much like how you have Al Jazeera coming out of Qatar, you have TRT World coming out of Turkey, and talking about the documentary. This documentary about Narendra Modi, the Islamophobic Prime Minister of India, well, who needs no introduction to your listeners. However, just this week, BBC, yes, BBC, you know, uh, that controversial news broadcaster that's always biased towards Muslims and Islam came out with a documentary exposing Modi for the treacherous character he is. And it did not fall short of making it known that that the target of his of his uh, hate are Muslims and other minorities as well. So this documentary, if I'm not mistaken, was released on Tuesday or Wednesday this week. Within 24 hours, the RSS, which many of you know is the right-wing group of extremist Hindutvas in India that basically have the BJP as its political wing. So the BJP party is a political wing of the RSS, right? So they control that that party, which is headed by Narendra Modi, who is the Prime Minister of India. The RSS is much your equivalent of the Zionist cabal, okay? Militant, aggressive, very uh, deceiving, and of course will curry favor with the right people in the right places in the Western world and in the so-called East, such as the Russians, etc., to get what they want. And of course, not to forget the bromance that has been going on for the past few years with Israel. Now, we all know about the Hasbara, which is the propaganda machine of the Israelis, of the Zionist lobby. So basically, it's their PR outfit that's there to whitewash Israel's actions and to always portray Israel as the victim and in a positive light in anything they're doing, including murdering senselessly murdering women and children. So that's the Hasbara. The RSS has its own equivalent. But do you know what's the danger here? It is not ten times bigger than the Hasbara. It is a hundred times bigger and more lethal. Why? By the sheer numbers of the Indian population. by the sheer numbers of the Indian population, the RSS propaganda machine. And it's not only out there recently. It's been in motion for some time. And of course, when Modi came to power in 2014, you saw what they're capable of. And between then and now, you saw what they really can do. Take, for example, 2019 on August 5th, when Articles 370 and 35A about Kashmir's semi-autonomous statement uh, status was revoked unilaterally by the Modi regime, how 
that propaganda machine came into full force in order to make it seem that this is the right thing we're doing. Right? Reverse to a few months earlier in 2019 to February 19 when the Pulwama attacks took place on the Indian soldiers where 41 uh, Indian army officers died, which was a false flag operation by all accounts because they just blamed Pakistan and Imran Khan and Imran Khan came on for syphilis and said, we had nothing to do with it. So it's obvious. You saw that kind of how they had their propaganda machine in overdrive. Now, come to the present day. That propaganda machine has come to a point whereby it is, you can say, from all angles, perfected. And how is this so? Well, as I said, look at the sheer numbers of Indian people. What's India's population today? 1.3 billion people. China's population is said to be 1.4. But do you know what? India is catching up with China very fast. In fact, there's already talk that India's population will exceed China's population within a year or two. In fact, China is now recording its first negative growth for many, for many years and for the right reasons because of whatever it was from their side. They had a one-child policy. Then they had a two-child policy. Now they've expanded a three-child policy. But because the average Chinese person, middle class, wants to live a decent life, wants to have a nice home, wants to send the children to good schools, are stopping at two children. They can't afford to have more than three, uh, more than two children. This is too expensive to run a home, like much of what the Western ideals are. In India, that doesn't exist. That's why the population is rapidly expanding. So now look at this. You have Israel there, which is a small, tiny, illegitimate state of, what's it, 8 million, 6 to 8 million Jewish Israelis, right? And then the balance are Arab Palestinians. And then your global Jewish population today, by all accounts, some people say it's as low as 13 million. We say a conservative estimate of 15 million around the world, of which there's only 65,000 in South Africa. Yes, you've heard correctly, there's only 65,000 Jewish people in South Africa out of a population of 60 million. So you've got that propaganda machine known as the Hasbara. Now, globally, the Hasbara has fed its tentacles, and it's not now over decades, into all the news media outlets, into all the intelligence spheres, into the military apparatus of the Western world. And I've got politicians on the payroll through their various lobbies, whether you have APAC in, 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 in the USA, you've got the one equivalent in Britain, you've got South Africa, we have the South African Zionist Federation, etc. So you have all these lobbies. And in turn, they've got people who are obviously on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, and all other social media sites doing their bidding. So the moment something comes out about Israel, whether it's on a news website or whether it's on a broadcast, whether it's t on television, on radio, straight away you've got people mobilized to respond. And they respond effectively. Yes, many a times the PR, ca that PR campaign for that particular moment, in that particular incident, in that particular context, backfires. For example, the Marvi Marmara incident of the 31st of May 2010 when the Israeli soldiers stormed the Marvi Marmara ship and killed 10 people. They went on a 
aggressive PR campaign. It backfired. But look at many other instances where they have successes and they win op the court of public opinion. And of course, there have been, up to recently, other incidents whereby their PR campaign has backfired. Nevertheless, who is included in that sphere of the Hasbara? It's the right-wing racists of Europe and America, and here in South Africa as well, who identify with the Zionist regime as their ally for the greater good, for the return of Jesus, for the return of, of, of order to the Western world. So you've got them on their side. So they're also part of that tech-savvy group that's there to respond. So on conservative estimates, you've got 50 million people that are active around the world doing the Hasperas dirty work. Right? Covering a population of 6 million Israelis, 6 to 8 million Israelis. Right? Now, if you take just Israeli 6 to 8 million, what is that in the context of India's population? Go 100 times more, 600 million out of 1.3 billion people, even if it's... So you've got 700 million people in India who are on the side of... on the right side, on the side of justice, on the side of living humanity, where believe in the ideals that humanity is for all, who are tolerant to the neighbor, whether Christian, Muslim, Hindu, etc. So you've got out of that 1.3 billion people, you've got 20% which are Muslim, you've got Christians, you've got Sikh, and you've got a lot of peace-loving Hindus, mainstream Hindus who refuse to identify with Hindutva and the RSS agenda. So conservative estimate of all of them, 700 million minimum. It could go to 900 million. But then you're left with 400 million minimum. Oh, I wouldn't say minimum. I'm just giving you, I'm throwing figures here to think about. So let's drop it down to 200 million. Can you imagine 200 million tech-savvy Indians trigger-happy on their, on their mobile phones, on social media, responding to anything that's negative about the RSS, about the BJP, about the Hindu agenda, about Modi, Amit Shah, Yogi, etc., all these guys? Can you just imagine how quick they are to respond? They just need one person in every single village throughout the country Right? Two, three in the major urban areas. In the big cities, a few more. Right? You won't even make up 200 million. But I'm just giving an example. Why? Because in India, generally the literacy rate is so high that people on their smartphones are able to comprehend and understand the situation and act immediately. Mobile phones are cheap in India. Cell phone coverage is throughout the country. Data is dirt cheap in India. It costs something like for have one gig a day access data, one gig a day access data for a month will cost the average Indian under 40 rand a month. Or maybe 40 rand a month. So that's what's happening. 200 rupees, yeah, about 40 rand, 50 rand a month. 
So the RSS propaganda machine is out in full force, and like that, they have got their tentacles spread in the Western world. They've got, they tried it here in South Africa not so long ago. We had an interview with Brother Inayat Wadi of Salam Media, myself and Dr. Faisal Sermon of Samnet, about what the threats are of that sort of hate spilling into South Africa. We already seen happening in Leicester, UK. It's been happening in New Jersey, USA. What stops it from coming to Durban, South Africa? Or Joburg, for that matter. So, the UK and generally, and, and how, it, how they're responding in the UK, that this is a victimization against the people of Indian origin. But the people who are making the statements know that they don't speak for all Indians. But you see how they put in the message across. Because if they spoke for all Indians, they, they would have included, they would have had the interests of Muslims, Indian, Indian born, uh, sorry, Muslims of Indian origin in, in the UK at heart. It even brought Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, who a lot of people had fear about that he's not, he's not going to be a fair person and he's going to be inclined towards Modi. He also criticized the BBC. The own uh, public broadcaster that is owned by his government, which he is the CEO, the Prime Minister of, he has criticized them, defending a leader of another country. What does that tell you? how strong the propaganda machine is. So, India calls the BBC Modi documentary propaganda. BBC calls it rigorously, rigorously researched. So that thing came on the BBC website straight away. It was on the YouTube channel. Within 24 hours, it was taken off YouTube. Right? A lot of people cry out foul, especially anti-vaxxers and those who are COVID deniers, that will say, oh, whatever stuff you put on YouTube, is taken out because the YouTube has got an agenda against the truth. Why did YouTube take out this documentary about Modi? Right? Because of the pressure of the Hindutva lobby together with the Zionist lobby, and I'm sure they are collaborating together on this, to take it off YouTube. Then people had it under, the, who managed to download it, put it on their own private pages of YouTube or private accounts of YouTube, and it tried to go around. Again, within 24 hours, it was taken down. Then some people took it to Facebook, under their Facebook pages as a live Facebook uh, video. It was taken down. Now it's going through other in, uh, platforms, and people are managing to get access to it. But can you see how the pattern works? Can you understand how detrimental this is, that when one wants to suppress the truth, to what extent they'll go to? If it was a fabrication, if it was not the truth, you think they would have bothered? You think Modi and, and, and the BJP and the RSS would have bothered having it taken down? They would say, David Jawadani? Because it is the truth. And because it exposes Modi for who he is, for the fascist that he is, for something that he's, he did a terrible deed 21 years ago to next month. Or is it March? Somewhere around there. But to 21 years in 2002 for the Gujarat massacre. They don't want the world to know because the way Modi has been marketed throughout the world as a leader, as such a loving leader, like nobody else has been marketed. If they can help it, they'll make Modi replace Gandhi. In fact, already in their books, 
in the Hindutva books, Gandhi don't exist because they feel that Gandhi was a sellout. So therefore, they really revered Modi to that, God, uh, to that kind of godly status, if I may put it this way. Saintly status, right? But they want to make sure that the whole of Indian society, good or bad, will accept Modi as, as that saintly figure. So nevertheless, this documentary that looks into Modi's role during the communal riots that wrecked the western Indian, in, uh, Indian state of Gujarat in 2002 has been criticized by the Indian government as a propaganda piece, while the broadcaster has said its two-part series was rigorously researched. According to the BBC, right, the, name, the title of the documentary is India, the Modi Question examines the tensions between India's Hindu majority and Muslim minority and explores the politics of Modi in relation to those tensions. The first part was broadcast in Britain on Tuesday, while the second will be aired next week. The communal riots erupted in Gujarat when Modi became India's Prime Minister in 2014, was then the state's Chief Minister. More than 1,000, actually it's more than 2,000 people Right? Mostly Muslims died in the violence that broke out after a train carrying Hindu pilgrims was set on fire, killing dozens. Obviously, the Hindutva version is the Muslims set, set the train on fire. Well, the, when the post-mortem results came out a few months later, that the fire started from within the train. The documentary highlights an unpublished report that the BBC said it obtained from the British Foreign Office. The report had, according to the broadcaster, raised issues over Modi's actions during the riots and claims that he was directly responsible for the climate of impunity that enabled the violence. The bias, lack of objectivity and continuing colonial mindset is blatantly visible. This is according to Sam Chamcha, who is the, uh, who's a spokesperson for the Indian Foreign Affairs known as the External Affairs Ministry. Right? Went, uh, in, in the response to this. Then, started questioning the motives behind the documentary, and he said it was designed to push a particular discredited narrative. It makes us wonder what the purpose of this exercise, the agenda behind it, and frankly, we do not wish to dignify such efforts. Right. In 2012, an inquiry by India's Supreme Court had exonerated Modi for any complicity in the riots, including charges that he had told police officers not to restrain the rioters. Last year, India's top court also dismissed a petition that questioned his exoneration. A day after the Indian government's sharp criticism of the documentary, the BBC said in a statement that the program was rigorously researched according to highest editorial standards. Well, we know when it comes to the BBC, CNN, Fox News, that when it comes to highest editorial standards, that, that part of it is very questionable because we see how they treat matters affected Muslims and Islam. Nevertheless, they went on to say that a wide range of voices, witnesses and experts were approached and we have featured a range of opinions, including responses from BJP people, right? Okay, the statement also said that it offered the Indian government an opportunity to reply to these matters that were raised in the series, but the Indian government declined. They went on to say, the BBC went on to say that the company was committed to highlighting important issues from around the world. We hear that all the time. So, in response to a question on the documentary, 
by a British lawmaker, Imran Hussein, in Parliament on Thursday. Right? Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that we don't tolerate persecution anywhere, but added that he did not agree with the characterization of the Indian Prime Minister. Well, that's, that's strong enough words. Basically, that's my guru. He's, he can't be faulted. He cannot do any wrong. And that's the sort of attitude they're having. So there are some platforms that you can access this, but the links are generally available through WhatsApp messages because the moment you post it on Facebook, it's removed. All you need to do is you need to have one person complain to Facebook or to Twitter and then it will be removed. And more so, given that Twitter is owned by the psycho Elon Musk, who is who said that there'll be no censorship, right? But obviously he's very selective. He went for the right wing and fascists of all colors, right? Except for Muslims, right? Didn't hesitate in having the content removed. Uh, I'm sure by now a lot of you should have seen the documentary. And those who get a chance to watch the documentary, try and download it if you can and keep it. It's very important to have this because it's something that, that tells the truth. And it's a very damaging way of telling the truth. Anyway, we move into other matters. And um, have, I'm sure you learn, people have heard of Blackwater. Have any of you heard of Eric Prince? Well, Eric Prince is the CEO and the founder of Blackwater. So Eric Prince um, is currently suing, is currently suing a top online news media outfit, right, that provides good alternative media information known as The Intercept. Who is The Intercept? The Intercept was founded by Jeremy Scahill, right, and together with Glenn, Gre Glenn Greenwald and Mehdi Hassan and a few others and a few other reputable journalists who are there trying to push for the truth, The Intercept is run by them. The Intercept is hard-hitting. It exposes all. It exposes the American establishment, the British establishment, the European establishment, the Russians, the Chinese, the Saudis, Emiratis, Egyptians, the Israelis, the Syrians under Assad, the Iranians, uh, those puppet regimes under, in Iraq, the fascists of India, such as Modi and the RSS, The Intercept, in my view, is amongst one of the leading, I wouldn't say neutral, but unbiased news sources that you can come across. The others are Middle East Eye, Middle East Monitor, the new Arab known as alarabi.co.uk, and a few others as well. So Eric Prince has decided to sue black, I mean, sorry, Eric Prince has decided to sue, uh, oh, sorry, not has, had decided to sue The Intercept back in December 2021. He filed a defamation lawsuit against The Intercept, right, over a 2020 article that examined his efforts to sell military services to a sanctioned Russian mercenary company, right? I'll come to that, who's that mercenary company from Russia. If you've heard me before, you would know who they are, right? So the lawsuit was filed in the United States District Court of New York 
right? And it says that Prince claimed that The Intercept published false or misleading statements about him and his business and accused him of being a criminal and a traitor, which he is. So who is this Russian mercenary company? Well, I'll come back again to that. So nevertheless, recently, and I think, well, it was in October, if I'm not mistaken, that the same lawsuit in New York was dismissed. So what happened was that Eric Prince has relaunched another lawsuit. I'm coming to something here which you need to understand. Especially those apologists over the current Russia-Ukraine war story. So the company that Eric Prince was working with, and you must know when it comes to mercenaries, morality does not exist. Humanity does not exist. Principles do not exist. Yes, there will be honor amongst thieves when it comes to sharing the loot. But that's about, it. that's about it. So the company that Eric Prince was working with, the Russian sanctioned company, was known none other than the Wagner Group. I've put on the air before about the Wagner Group. About the, I've spoken about the Wagner Group, told you where the Wagner Group is operating. They're operating right now on Thursday in northern Mozambique. And speaking of northern Mozambique, you know that video that went around last week or the week before about the South African soldiers lighting the bodies of, uh, dead bodies of, uh, or setting alight the dead bodies there in Mozambique, right? And taking videos about it, the South African Defense Force chamchas. That was all the Wagner groups doing. They told, they must have given a few dollars to each of the stupid soldiers and told them, listen, do this. For money, anybody would talk. And then on top of it, the idiots were uh, videoing it. And, on, and one of them was videoing all of them. And that's how it leaked to the media. And now the South African Defense Force is blue-faced, embarrassed. It's actually a, a, it's a terrible scar on the reputation of the South African government. Where is the respect for the dead? A person is dead, is dead. You put him into a coffin, into a box. You don't go and set their bodies alight. That's the work of those who are sick and rotten to the cause, such as these mercenaries. So why was Eric Prince scrambling for cover over this matter? It's because it came to a point whereby Blackwater served a major purpose to the U.S. government. We saw it back in 2003 when Iraq was invaded for the second time by the U.S.-led coalition forces with England, uh, with, uh, with Britain under Tony Blair, and Blackwater came onto the scene. Prior to that, you heard of Blackwater around 9-11, around the time of the Afghanistan invasion in October 20, uh, 2001, but nobody paid much attention to it. Blackwater has been born mercenary entity sorry about that has been a US born mercenary entity that is there to do their dirty work they employ people from all over the world who have some sort of military skills police skills intelligence skills and are able to kill 
Back in 2005, 2006, in Joburg, I met some Afrikaner guys that were down on holiday from overseas. So I thought they were experts working somewhere in the Gulf, in Dubai or somewhere. I said, where are you working? They said, on work in Iraq. I said, in Iraq? Really? What are you doing in Iraq? No, we are there with the, we providing security services. If you look at the both of these guys, it, it's scary. And the guns that they were carrying, I mean, they got the licenses, they were carrying semi-automatic guns on them. Right? So I asked them, uh, with all the uh, fighting that I, I acted completely dumb about it. Question it them, but tell me what all the fighting's going on, the bomb blasts here and there. Don't you guys get scared? They said, yeah, but you know, we're not scared of anything. We know how to act. They said, by the way, the money is very good. So the next question came in. How much do you earn a month? How much do they pay you out of curiosity? That time it was six cents to the US dollar. And we get 60,000 a month. That's equivalent to $10,000. And then came the final question. Which company are you working for? Working for Blackwater. I heard of Blackwater before that, so I knew what they were. I was trying to see, lead the guy on and to see how far coming. And he, he didn't, he wasn't apologetic about it. The only reason maybe he was a bit forthcoming in his answers to me was because he was, we had a mutual friend, was an African chap. And that's how maybe he felt, okay, talking to me. Maybe to anybody will ask him like that randomly and won't take it, uh, won't take it kindly. So coming to Blackwater, Blackwater is active throughout the world. But that's America's baby. That was the, under the sanction of, uh, uh, sorry, the creation of Blackwater was sanctioned by Dick Cheney, the most evil man in America. So at the same time, there was Putin, who was the rising star to the West, when he came into power in 1999-2000, right? Sorry, there's something coming in. There's some interruption here, right? Who was a rising star said that, uh, wait a minute, we need our own mercenary wing. It was already showing in Chechnya back in the Second War of 1999 to 2001, right? And where it came into prominence was when they went it, uh, sorry, when it was the attacks against the uh, Georgian states in 2008 of Abkhazia and Ush uh, Usheta, if I'm not mistaken, Oseta, yes. And then after that, it was with, with Syria. They were active in Syria from 2012, but fully fledged since 2015 when Assad formally asked Putin for help. The Wagner Group is active in Libya, Central African Republic, Mozambique, and several other places. So Eric Prince was trying desperately hard to whitewash, to shine his image on the global scene, to not be associated with the Wagner Group. Because it's come to a point by, by the once the darling for the West that they had, where the West thought they had their man or a person that they could relate to, talk to, identify with, heading Russia by name of Vladimir Putin, 
now he has become a foe. But not for the reasons of humanity, for the reasons of social justice, not for those reasons. They are enemies because they both want their slice of the cake or the piece of the pie. And naturally you get people amongst us who foolishly say, oh, Russia is right. Forget how many Muslims Putin killed in Chechnya or in Syria, Russia is right. Because America can never do any right, they're always wrong. Yes, we know America is always wrong. And rightfully so, because whatever they do in the Muslim, Arab world, in the third world, upsets us, it hurts us, it enrages us, infuriates us. So yes, and I fully feel that way. I fully agree with you and I feel that way. But don't think Russia is our savior from the West, and by extension China. If you can see what is happening in India with Modi as a fascist leader, and how leaders of the West, maybe their own Chamsha like Rishi Sunak and them are defending him, surely it's because their economic interests are aligned and they, and they complement one another. But at the end of the day, the Russians and the Chinese are no different because they have one common enemy. All these leaders of all these regimes the, economy, the common enemy is humanity or social justice for humanity. Greed is what's common amongst all of them. They all want to exploit. They are coming into Africa. The colonial powers of Portugal, France, England, Britain, etc., Belgium are over. Now you've got the modern-day colonialists. When you see Chinese, Indian companies, Russian companies, Israeli companies making inroads to Africa, including the modern-day colonials of America, uh, sorry, uh, American companies making inroads into Africa, you must know that at the end of the day, what serves the interest? Greed. The other day, one uh, American friend of ours, ex-Dermanite, who's living there 25 years, said, you can't fault corporate America for anything. I said, you're talking absolute rubbish. And I gave some reasons. Oh, what gives you the, the right to define them as being greedy. I said they are greedy. It starts there. And not only they're not uniquely to America, it starts there and in Europe and Britain together. So the Wagner group, right, that has about 50,000 of its mercenaries operating currently in Ukraine, right, many of them are from, I think about 80% of them are drawn from Russian prisons, right, okay, has come to a point whereby that the American government has, they can't, try, they can't classify them as a terrorist organization. And I'll tell you why. Because if they need them to complement Blackwater somewhere in the world, they will use them. So what they classified the Wagner Mercenary Group as a transnational criminal organization. That's the best um, classification that could they could be given to the Wagner Group. So that's coming back to that's why Eric Prince has been suing the Intercept because the Intercept exposed their relationship, how they working together. That's when I come to the thing and I tell people about this war in Ukraine. It's not all it what it seems to be that 
that NATO wanted to expand into Ukraine and Putin is resisting and he's felt that, you know what, if he, if he doesn't invade Ukraine, then Ukraine is going to fall to the West. Ah, there's more to it than that. It's a part of, it's a war between two proud powers who don't give a damn what happens to the rest of the world. I don't have much time, uh, much time to tell on that because there's another important topic that I want to talk about. And staying on the topic of these people that, like Eric Prince, like the Wagner group headed by this character, what's his name again, Evgeny Prigozhin, who is one of Putin's oligarchs, right? He was known as Putin's chef, turned oligarch, now he's the head of uh, the Wagner group. A lot of people have been carried away by a figure by the name of Andrew Tate. I'm sure you've heard about him by now. His conversion to Islam. But I want to ask you listeners, Alhamdulillah, don't get me wrong. Anybody coming into the fall of Islam, we must welcome them with open arms. Especially those who are seen to be our enemies. And Hidayah comes to them, they learn about Islam and they come over, subhanAllah. The principle of welcoming a person who converts to Islam is always there. But, having a controversial figure like Andrew Tate converting to Islam is not something that bugs me or a few others, right? Or bugs Islam, as Islam is not exclusive to me. However, seeing the takfir and attacks made upon Muslims for questioning both the conversion and the reaction of other Muslims does. So according to this one brother who put it out in a, a few tweets, in a, a third of few tweets, that watching the highlights from his vacation in Dubai to see how his trip in which he embarrassed, uh, sorry, in which he embraced Islam was, there were things that stood out to me as not being normal for a spiritual trip. First of be, him being, uh, first of being him parting on a yacht, being seen smoking and drinking with half-naked girls. In a video, which seems to be later that night, same clothes, right? Okay, you see him together with the guy with the golden shirt, saying that Dubai is inshallah going to be his new home. I don't know if he was already a Muslim here, but that doesn't matter. It is a strange night for a conversion trip. Later on that trip, they went to the Islamic Center in Dubai, where the first video came of him, of them playing together. As a Muslim, my first reaction was, what? From the yacht with half-naked girls, drinking booze, immediately to the mosque, in what seems to be a few hours apart. Then this guy went on to say, I found that the name of Andrew's friend is Tam Khan. And on his Twitter feed, he posts, uh, sorry, he retweets, the Maesters Club giving thanks for hosting the Tate Brothers. So what is the Maesters Club? M-E-I-S-T-R-S. The Maesters Club, okay, we'll come to that. Thank you to Saif Ahmad Balhassa for hosting the Maesters Club and the Tate Brothers at the Fame Park. It was a true honor to be your guest for today. So, the Maesters Club is apparently an elite networking club that's based in Dubai. For our elite members, the Maesters Club will provide nothing short of the elite benefits 
Throughout the year, members will be invited to the most opulent and breathtaking events to engage, network, create new connections and experience. Members will be invited to supercar events, extravagant yacht parties, right, and all-inclusive weekend trips to the Maldives, right, flown by a private jet on a regular basis with an unlimited supply of ladies, alcohol, etc. So, looking at their website, you see the Islamic models, <laughs> right, and information on what they provide, like extravagant yacht parties, all-inclusive weekend trips, etc., luxury cars, name it. So, further on, Tan Khan Twitter uh, tweets that he, uh, thank you for Muslims for the support of Andrew Tate. He writes that celebrating someone joining the Brotherhood overtakes any materialistic achievement. I'm pretty sure I just saw a party of an elite club uh, yacht with half-naked women. So, then Temkan goes to say, but we are so humbled by the messages from Muslims worldwide. Just goes to show the beauty of our religion, the support we have for the deen, celebrating someone joining the brotherhood, etc. It overtakes any materialistic achievement, the beauty of Islam, people daily highlight. So, this brother Omar went on to say, personally, I feel like Islam, especially in Dubai, has become a celebrity's, in inverted commas, shower, shower me with gifts and I love Islam thing. And anyone who dares to question the approach of this extravagant way of bringing celebrities to Islam is attacked with takfirism, such as, you know, several people, like Said Akhtar of Dome, documenting oppression against Muslims, people like uh, C.J. Wellerman, who is no stranger to the airwaves, right? They've been, they been accused of takfirism, of, of, uh, of uh, bringing Islam into disrepute because they're questioning these conversions. Social media is absolutely full of comments like these, slamming mostly Muslim sisters as hypocrites with a special place in hell. For what? A controversial celebrity who made his money on pornography and pumping out women? Where did all this something come from? And it's still happening. Why is he jail, in jail currently now in Romania? He converted to Islam in October. That was three months ago. In December, he was arrested in Romania for trafficking women, for still having his pornography uh, sites and then all operating. And people are getting carried away, but with, well, because he's such an influencer, to say that I... Andrew Tate says, I've seen shaitan. I know that Allah is the only true God. So because of him making statements like this, they feel, hey, Hazrat has come. And now after he got arrested on trafficking charges, social media is full of comments that have made him a martyr. As if he didn't make his money pumping out girls and milking desperate men out of money and ruining family for years. Now he's what's today's men need. Is he what today's men need? He's embarrassing. So being a Muslim doesn't make you a saint, as I understand it. This is according to another brother. In Mecca, first 13 years was just focused on unity of God for those coming out of a period of ignorance. That's it. Commandments and prohibitions came later. It's been only two months. Well, it's actually three months. We all said that God be the judge. But wait a minute. When you become a Muslim, when you convert to Islam, if you were involved in prostitution, pornography, uh, woman trafficking, etc., 
What you do with those sort of illegal businesses, you cut ties with it completely. Yes, it's a different story if you were running a legitimate business, for example, a manufacturing plant making permissible Jai's products that are halal to trade in. That way nobody says you must stop. So it goes on to the Muslim fanboys of Andrew Tate are brutally attacking other Muslims who are questioning not only the purpose of his conversion, but his past and present life. When was the last time you saw someone parting on an yacht with half-naked models and becoming a Muslim a few hours later? And these are the sort of hard-hitting questions that C.J. Wellerman, Zaid Akhtar of Doom, Doom UK, which is documenting operation against Muslims, which is a reputable NGO, are questioning, are asking these questions. I'm also asking this question, that have you not for one minute thought that Andrew Tate is a plant? Allah knows best, of course, but we must not be gullible, especially if he's carrying on his nonsense. I mean, he's walking around in and out of the Romania court to the jail with a Quran in his hand. Now look at it from the non-Muslim viewer who is ignorant about Islam and who looks at Annotate with admonishment. Let's say, does Islam attach such scum, such dirt? Anyway, dear listeners, that's all we have time for. For this part, uh, those on Radio Al Ansar will catch up with me after the 12 o'clock news. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.